tuning in. This is performance psychologist Fiona Murden and you're listening to the Dot to Dot podcast. Our purpose? To explore the rich insights that personal narratives bring, speaking to subject matter experts through to people sharing their own life stories. And while you're listening, I encourage you to find potential seeds of wisdom that could breathe new life into your current endeavours. And in the coming weeks, we'll be sharing some news about a massively exciting platform that we've spent the last year and a half developing. If you're listening after October 2023, it's already out there. But for now, sit back, relax, walk, run, drive, or do whatever you do when you're tuning in. Today, I am very happy to welcome Sebastian Curtin to, and have I said your surname correctly there? Yes, yes. I have. All right. That's that's something to celebrate. I'm not always very good at pronouncing things. Sebastian Curtin, tell us a little bit more about you. Who are you? What do you do at the moment? And then maybe we could talk a little bit more about what led you to do this. Yes, uh, thank you for introducing me. Um, my name is Sebastian. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Cambridge um, at the uh, medical school at the Cognition and Brain Science Unit. And um, what my main field of research is at the moment, we investigate the effects that uh, social media has on uh, adolescent uh, well-being. And um, yeah, to do so, we run uh, mul- like a lot of different studies. We look at uh, adolescents in multiple countries. We look at adolescents with uh, multiple backgrounds. And what really interests me is for example, uh, yeah, how adolescents in different uh, societies, for example, in, uh, from countries in Southeast Asia or in Africa, or uh, adolescents growing up, um, yeah, in deprived uh, families uh, in the UK, how uh, their well-being uh, is associated with uh, social media use, and what are the differences in the different subgroups of adolescents. And from a from a sort of a more academic perspective. What I'm thrilled to hear you say there is you are looking at populations other than just the UK or Europe. It's taking it further afield because there are massive differences. Um, And we have had a history in psychology of focusing a lot of our research on to America and Europe and maybe Australasia. And so that's fantastic that you're looking at different demographics and different um, populations yeah so what what, what kind of draw my uh, attention to to that so before i joined um, academia i was uh, working as a social worker so i'm I'm trained uh, by training i'm like a social worker and a statistician and um so i worked a lot with uh yeah in 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 public child protection and what really uh, sparked my interest there is that when you work with uh with adolescents um and and you realize that you know uh adolescents grow up in a lot of different uh, life realities and some some of them have more chances uh, than others then that really uh, sparked my interest in yeah what are like specific risks for example associated with growing up in in specific uh, settings and yeah what what we yeah what i find interesting about it that it's also sometimes not so much about like the individual differences or something but it's more about like okay, what uh, about societal context? So as a product of a specific societal context that you uh, grow up in, what, what does that then do yeah, to how, yeah, how you see life, how you uh, grow up? And everything. 
And again, I'm thrilled to hear that because as an organisational occupational psychologist, it's we are very conscious of context and looking at things within within the bigger context. But again, with research, I think aside from social psychology, there can be a tendency to look at um, individuals in isolation of their context. Um, which doesn't make sense because we're completely interconnected with the people around us in particular. Um, and I mean, I'm, I'm massively interested in that from a personal perspective, because the second book I wrote was about uh, some of the neuroscience behind um, social learning. So I, I could geek out for hours on this, but let's talk more about you. So I didn't realize that you had been a social worker. Um, was that your sort of first career calling, as it were? Did you train? What? Where did you grow up, and how? How did it lead you to 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 have an interest in those things and pursue them as a career? Yeah, so I I grew up in um, in Germany, basically, where I uh, spent um, yeah where, where I used to work for like a short time um, as a social worker. So I start so I grew up in Cologne. Um, I studied social work there at like a small university um, for five years. I, I worked half a year in uh, child protection. I worked in um, educational and uh, educational things some like science communication. Um, yeah, um, and so yeah, my main focus was on uh, yeah was on uh, child protection, and um, this is where I started first as like a research um, research assistant, um, um, working on um, on research project investigating um, the, uh, yeah stress and and well being among uh, staff in uh, social work because that was something doing doing uh, doing working as a social worker. What what really came to my attention? Um, I think like a lot of people always complain uh, about their jobs, but there it uh, became apparent that there's maybe some more substance uh, to these uh, complaints than uh, maybe with other uh, people. Um, so yeah, this, this was was like my first uh, yeah, kind of my first career, but it, I only worked in this field for for like a year before I switched uh, to research. I mean, it's it's a tough tough environment. Um being a social worker I think it you can feel and this is me hypothesizing and asking questions as much as anything is disempowered by the environment because um you just want to help these families and and there aren't always ways to help um and so I, I'm guessing did that lead you to the sort of the curiosity of wanting to understand more about some of the mechanisms that that enable or yes yes exactly the the unique kind of challenge i think that you have in this field um you you kind of you basically have two demands you want to help but you also you also need to control um in a sense and and that makes working in these fields um quite difficult so um for example um, you can have like um uh, how how it how it is organized in Germany uh, basically means um, the primary your primary purpose is to help and for example parents they reach out and they ask for help and then you get a mandate to help them and only in uh, in a, a small proportion of cases um, you are uh, demanded to uh, 
yeah, to kind of protect and, and to control in a sense when like a well-being um, of children is at uh, severe risk. And this is also what, what puts a, a high strain uh, or what can put a high strain um, on, on workers because if you're in an occupation, um, for example, where you would only help, then it's way easier, for example, to, uh, to get rewarded um, uh, for that. Um, but if you have this control demand, it can be quite challenging, like an example would be. So, um, for example, uh, yeah, for example, one situation that would encounter quite often is it would be in the, in the afternoon, you basically almost finished um, a whole uh, workday. And then you come into a situation um, when there's some, uh, yeah, some crisis in a family and you, you need to um, take a, a child to, to another place or you need to uh, get active. And or for example, you need to take a child uh, out of the family and that would be, um, and that would be at the very end of your work day. You've already worked like for eight hours, and this is then kind of like still coming up. And you know, naturally, you're exhausted, and then you need to deal with a challenging uh, situation. And it's not like um, it would be a situation, for example, where the parents would be very happy to see you. It's like, oh, you made it after a long work day. So nice. Please uh, take uh, our children or uh, like find a solution. So. This is what, what can make it a challenge because it, is, it can be, yeah, there can be an absence of rewards um, uh, in a sense, uh, basically. And, that, and, and did that lead you to do the, the research that you did on um, the impact of transformational leadership on perceived effort reward imbalance among social workers? Yes, exactly. So um, what, what our idea was then to, um, to, to find a model to um, explain that and identify um, mechanisms that could help social workers in this uh, situation to, to do their job better. So the, um, uh, a, a model that is um, used in various fields to, to describe that, that thing is the effort reward um, imbalance model, which basically assumes that um, you have certain, um, a job, for example, comes with certain efforts and, and we, uh, rewards of different kinds. And that there always need to be uh, a balance of a sort. So for ex a very easy example would be if you need to work a lot of hours, if you need to make over hours, and for example, then if your payment would be very high, you get some kind of um, reward for it. And even though you need to work a lot, you can also then uh, do a fancy vacation once per year, two weeks, because you have all that money. And that could then kind of offset uh, these, these efforts. Um, but these efforts and rewards can also come in different forms. So it can be emotionally challenging, what I think is a very uh, strong motive in, uh, in social work because, um, yeah, you're working with uh, people in very challenging uh, situations. And this puts on, on the social work a lot of like emotional strains. And um, yeah, and therefore um, it is very important that, that there are rewards um, basically. Um, but we also saw that uh, these rewards are kind of in risk because yeah, the, the payment is not um, exceptionally high. It is, um, yeah, it is very difficult because, uh, because you also are in this protective setting. So you have to follow a lot of like objective rules. It is a very kind of standardized process. Um, which uh, can make it additionally uh, uh, challenging. It takes away your autonomy, doesn't it? And I think we know that autonomy has a huge, hugely positive impact on people's emotional health uh, in the work environment. 
Yes, yes, um, exactly. The autonomy um, or like agency, um, different perspectives of, of looking um, at this this construct. Um, um, yeah, that that basically um, is a very is a thing that can improve your well being because it gives you the feeling um, of being in control, and this um, yeah the, this feeling um, of of not being in control um, is something um, that can um, yeah that 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 can challenge you. And this is also where transformational leadership uh, kind of comes into play because um, the the idea um, the idea of transformational leadership is basically that you um, perceive your employees or you give you as a leader of the work group or of the team, you give your employees um, the, the resources that they need to kind of transform themselves to perform their job well. So as a trans transformational leader, you would ask basically, or you would ask yourself or ask your employees, okay, what can I do um, to help you uh, succeeding in your job, or what kind of resources um, do you need in succeeding in your job? How can I um, provide them? Uh, how can I uh, help you in, in uh, doing that, basically? And that feels like a very fundamental human need to 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 feel supported by the person that is in effect controlling you, which is a further level of disempowerment. But then, if you've got someone like that. Uh, in that transformational leadership, taking that stance of transformational leadership, it it provides comfort, um, empowerment, motivation. It gives back some of that agency you were talking about, helps people navigate the environment they're in and provides, I mean, the thing that's probably hardest and most important is the emotional support. Yes, yes, exactly. It's It's um, what you say, it's the, the, the paradigm or the idea of supporting that is uh, very important um, in these uh, social work settings um, from a leadership perspective. Um, I think what, what is still kind of a lot of, um, or it's still quite dominant in a lot of like the leadership um, ideas or like, uh, or how leadership is done in a lot of institutions is the idea of control that like a leader <clears throat> or a boss, uh, so to say, is supposed to control its employees, um, but this this idea or this paradigm um, it hits um, borders if you work in very challenging situations um, with uh, with people, for example, or like when you um, so take the take the daily work as a social worker, um, you have to deal with very complex situations, and so um, you assume that everyone is trained really well and. They're experts in dealing with these situations. So um, it will be very difficult for a leader to, um, to uh, control someone in this situation because there's so much information and the person um, making this decision in the moment is, um, is seen as the expert because it is, it is a very complex decision. So the idea of controlling, saying people how they should behave in certain situations is very difficult because Every situation is very unique if you work with people, um, basically. And this is why supporting employees is seen um, as rather effective compared to like controlling um, employees. It also has to do a lot with trust and um, how trust is also like a very basic human need. And if you feel that, you know, um, your leaders or your colleagues trust you, then you feel much more empowered um, to perform a, a certain job, basically. 
and and trust is i mean it's fundamental isn't it when i work with leadership teams um with the aim of becoming high performing teams the the foundation always has to be trust if trust isn't there then you can almost just not bother because it has to underpin every every effective relationship but again when you're talking about the complexity and the the strain and the pressure that uh, social workers are under all these things the volume is turned up on them so like you describe in different organizations of course the same sort of thing applies and it matters but when you're in such a high pressure environment the volume is really turned up and so you see the levers play out a, a lot more before your eyes or or you're able to do great research like like you did yes yes exactly <clears throat> i think pressure is a um <clears throat> oh sorry it's fine yeah um i think um, what you said like that trust is a is a foundation of, of good working teams i think that is also key here because control is something that can um, that can undermine trust um basically and if you and, and the pressure is always high um on these people because there's also a, a mechanism um, at play is basically because the pressure on these teams is so high and the work is challenging. A lot of people leave and then you have less people and the people that kind of remain um, even have to deal um, with the situation. And um, yeah, it is it is really challenging um, at the moment, these uh, working fields. So that's also... Wait, what, sorry. No, that's also what we saw in our research that there's... Um, a positive influence on um, of transformational leadership on this um, behavior. I mean, what we basically did, we asked um, 200, a bit less than I think 180 or 200 social workers from um, very different um, child protection, like the public child protection services in Germany. And um, we asked them about their experiences and how they, how they perceived leadership behavior. And indeed, we found that this, like there's some data to it, that this supports um, their well-being and their feeling of autonomy and you can see exactly the same in in the nhs where you have uh, nurses who are under and doctors but nurses under huge level of strain um the pressure can often lead someone a manager or a leader of the group to to act in a non-transformational way which then increases the uh, the impact, the negative impacts on on the people within that team, undermines trust, creates a vicious cycle because then you have people leaving, puts more pressure on the people that are already there. Um, the boss gets more stressed. The boss returns to more of a command and control way of operating, and here we go again. Yeah, that's that's exactly um, a mechanism. Um, the the models that we use like transformation leadership, effort reward imbalance, that is something that originated exactly in research on occupational health in uh, health service workers. Um, because that is indeed an, an, another field that is very closely related where you have very similar uh, mechanisms and the vicious circles um, that you described that is, um, yeah, that is a, a thing you can get easily into in these um, um, working in, uh, environments. Another issue that we encountered um, was that people uh, who uh, described that they were um, 
yeah, that were struggling a lot with with their um, yeah, with their well-being, with their workplace well-being, but that they also were um, very highly committed. Like we could say, they were over committed um, to to some extent, and that put additional strain um, to them um, because um, yeah, over committed over commitment. Um, Kind of makes you lose a bit the ability to recharge um, yourself and take like a critical distance. So um, yeah, we 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 could even go so far and say that uh, overcommitment is kind of a losing game for your mental health in the in the workplace. Well, I think particularly when it's something so vocational, because you're you're doing this not for the money. You're not doing it because you're going to be have a, a luxury, you know car at the end of it or uh, your fancy holidays or anything like that you're doing it because you care and and you want to make a difference um it's interesting as well the research within doctors and nurses um this this piece of research specifically doctors but it's been repeated globally that burnout increases as levels of empathy increase so you see the more caring someone is the more they care mm -hmm. the more they will burn out um yeah, although is. that that there's an interesting there are there is also counter research saying that burnout results from people who have lower empathy so i think i think it, there's a lot to unpick and to understand that we don't really know the details on yet and that's what i love about our field with psychology and brain sciences and it, there's still a lot to learn and it's so complex um and so that I mean that is massively interesting it's something that I'm really passionate about I I don't I've never worked with social workers um I have worked with doctors and nurses and and find them massively uh I just I I feel like they are just angels the the work that they do and how they do it and it's the same as true of social workers because they put themselves in positions of physical and emotional risk the whole time for the sake of of looking after others um and so what led you from that where obviously you were dealing with children you were dealing with situations where you were seeing um not not nice environments and you wanted to try and understand that more you've ended up in the UK so just in terms of you and now very much focused on that research around children or teenagers in particular adolescents and how they respond to social media yes so it was basically was a bit of the idea to kind of shift from the very practical side of you to take more of like a, a bird's view on things um, and to look at it from a research perspective. It was, um, yeah, it was mainly the idea of, of taking, taking another perspective um, on, on the same thing. So what I basically did afterwards, I, um, I, uh, I stopped working as a social worker and then I, I studied uh, statistics and uh, did a PhD in social science and then afterwards um, I came to the UK um, to work uh, on on one project together uh, yeah with my uh, colleagues uh, Amy Orban and uh, Sakshi Guy who are like uh, wonderful uh, co uh, yeah colleagues on this project what we basically do um, 
we work together uh, with UNICEF on a big study uh, that's called Disrupting Harms. And uh, the main idea um, of the study is um, yeah, to look at, um, yeah, to look at uh, online related um, abuse um, of adolescents in uh, different countries, uh, specifically uh, in, in the global south. So we have uh, the data from African uh, south, Southeast Asia. And um, what motivated me to do this switch is that you basically you have the um, yeah you have the possibilities of um, yeah of of doing these studies and then investigating in a very large scale what are risk factors for uh, adolescent well-being and how can we or how can we identify ways of improving um, adolescent mental health and um, adolescent well-being and it's the idea that you know um, we are uh, yeah we're working on this really hard to because we have the idea that we can really make an impact by doing that well and you know uh, producing a thoroughly researched uh, yeah uh, study um, yeah and that that was that was my motivation uh, to come to the UK basically so there's a drive to want things to improve to find out how you can be part of making that happen at scale exactly exactly at scale and because i think it's it's so relevant um, at the moment um, i was even surprised i don't know whether you've watched the the champions league uh final um, last we were like in the this week no I'm, I'm sorry i probably should have done but no i didn't <laughs> and they have um they they even you know that the uefa they always have these campaigns um, against racism and you know awareness for certain things and they had a, a campaign, campaign um, thing was against um, online abuse uh, or like online related, uh, yeah, online related abuse of, of young women. And I thought that was quite interesting because that, is, that was exactly um, uh, what we are researching. And it is now, I feel, it is now coming in, in uh, more in the, in the public sphere. Um, another example why it became so relevant was like, a couple, like this during the last year, a couple of months ago, when Elon Musk bought Twitter. With basically a lot of layoff in um, teams in different um, countries, for example, in the Philippines, um, or, and these teams were mainly uh, uh, busy with uh, content moderation or like investigating harmful content. And so, what what we basically see is, um, or the, the main problem I think is, we have a lot of um, yeah social like we have billions of people using uh, social media, and um, we don't really know. Um, how many children are uh, victims of online-related abuse um, on different platforms, um, yeah, on different uh, channels. And we don't really, uh, we, we first, we don't know how many are victims, and we also don't know how many, um, uh, how many we can, or how we can protect them from it, or how we can improve uh, this situation. And this is basically what we, what we want to uh, investigate. And so, the, yeah, this is why we think that this is very relevant at the moment. It's huge. It's hugely relevant. It's hugely important. Um, I I have a teenage daughter myself, and I have another daughter who's ten, so about to become a teenager. And there's an elusiveness about what happens online. Like even when you can look over their shoulder, it's different from when I was growing up, when my parent could come into the room and see what was on television mm -hmm. um, or pick up the book that you're reading and look at the cover but with online it's 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 so pervasive and yet so easy 
to hide it from people who could protect or want to protect that teenager. Yes, yes, um, that, that's that's true. Um, and um, yeah, I think uh, the, the the research how it was characterized the last couple of years, um, it, it was very much um, about um, yeah, us in Western societies, basically, mm. a couple of years as researchers as collectively trying to figure out a bit okay our the, the the common observation was all our children are on social media is is that is that bad um is that bad for the children um what does it um what, what does, does it, it do yeah what does it what does it do uh, to them and then uh, we spent a couple of years of researching um and uh, i think it's it's fair uh, to say now that there are like uh, maybe like small uh, negative links between uh, media use and uh, um yeah, and, and well-being uh, among adolescents. Um, we can talk about that uh, that more uh, later. Yeah, I'd love to. But what, what what I think is what we still don't know is that it's a very Western perspective. Mm. We don't know what does social media do to adolescents in sub-Saharan Africa yep. who live like who grow up on a very different uh, yeah in a very different context with very different possibilities. Um, and so I think. Now, after we figured out kind of our Western perspective of things, it's maybe time to like think about it globally and see, okay, what well, what do we need to do on a on a larger scale um, to to uh, yeah to to deal with uh, social media or how to improve it for adolescents? Absolutely, and I think it's more important than ever to have that global view because all social media is accessible. I mean, I know there are some blocks in certain countries, but globally. And so it's really important to know how one piece of content has a different effect on different individuals in different environments and different cultures. Um, so the, the, the data you have, was it, was it one of the first studies where it was looking at the alcohol use? Um, what I was talking about now, there was a study where we look at um, where we look at media um, use and um, the prevalence of uh, media-related abuse in uh, different uh, in different countries. Um, like research on um, research on media use and uh, yeah, and substance uh, uh, use. There were studies we conducted uh, in Belgium that was um, that was basically one and two years uh, ago. This is also why I said, okay, I think this this is what we did, like the last couple of years, figure out the the European West, West yeah, and now the next is we need to move on and kind of look at it on the a, rest of the world. <laughs> on the rest of the world, basically, yes, yes, yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, I've I've read all sorts of different research, um, and I think there's some research that says social media doesn't have an impact unless some researchers of social media does have an impact uh, some that says if a child already has a propensity towards anxiety and depression then it's more likely to exacerbate that um which actually makes sense when you start looking at some of the mechanisms but it's all very it's all a bit vague still isn't it a lot of the research <clears throat> vague's probably not the right word but you know where I'm going with it. <laughs> no, I, I definitely I, I would maybe replace the word vague with like layered. Um, they're very. That's a much better word. Yeah, like with research, it very much depends on the perspective. 
how I would, from my perspective, sum up the current evidence on media use and well-being, mental health of adolescents. That on average, I'm saying like on general, on a general level, I think that we see we see evidence for like a small negative, uh, a small negative link of social media use and well-being, and then well-being, but also like a small negative thing with, for example, what you mentioned before, like risk behavior, like alcohol consumption or like other uh, risk behavior. Um, I think that does that. That uh, that doesn't mean that you should be worried if your uh, if your child is on social media. But so, but what I think is to um, as an addition to this claim that there are small negative associations are like three uh, three uh, major things or so three things I think to keep in mind. The, for me, the first thing is like probably um, on a general level, um, social media um, doesn't do massive harm. To mental health uh, in general, but it is probably also not a super beneficial thing. And I would share it. So, if um, yeah, if it always depends on what is the alternative. If um, yeah, if you're like just sitting at home for an hour, don't have anything to do, if you're then on social media, um, or like if it's adolescent then on social media, that won't probably do massive harm. But you know, if you prefer to stay on social media instead of being outside with friends or doing other activities which could be better for your um, men, which could actively improve mental health or well-being, then there's kind of opportunity costs for being off social media. And I think a second thing that is really important is the is child's uh, vulnerability, uh, basically. So um, in different subgroups, uh, different content, for example, can be indeed very harmful. So for um, so for example, one study um, that uh, my group did under the lead of Amy Orban was to basically show that there are certain um, windows of sensitivity during which children are vulnerable to, um, yeah, to uh, negative uh, effects of social media use. Um, and what, what they uh, identified basically that you have, you have these vulnerabilities uh, during the onset of puberty. So, um, uh, I think it's about 13, 14 for uh, girls and one or two years later um, for boys. And the, the mechanism that we hy hypothesize basically is that uh, social media is a, is a medium where um, yeah, comparisons are increased because you're constantly confronted with, okay, what uh, do, do my peers do? What do my friends do? Um, and this is a, a period where you pay a lot of attention to that. When you're going into puberty, another vulnerable um, phase was from the age 18 and 19. You basically finish school and transition into uh, adult life. Um, I remember that also an example from my personal life. Like my sister, uh, she's 19 now. Um, she also studies uh, psychology. Um, <laughs> and when she finished school, she she would uh, often tell me like, "Oh, look, like my friend." She got this uh, very competitive very, uh, placement at like a very prestigious university. Um, oh, I will never get that. Um, and something, or like someone would have a very fancy apartment. It's like, wow, how did you find that apartment? I will never find a flat on my own. And these are age phases, um, I think, um, in which um, <clears throat> um, doing rich adolescents are very vulnerable. And I think the third thing is, 
is the content basically, uh, because there's specific content that is indeed, uh, or that can be very harmful um, for adolescents. Um, and so if adolescents are confronted with that content, that is a major risk, I think, for mental health and well-being. Um, I talked earlier about, um, yeah, for example, of uh, yeah, sexual abuse or like solicitating and grooming on um, uh, social media. They could, for example, the adolescents are uh, unwillingly confronted with pornographic content. Um, uh, they, are, they are solicited for uh, sending uh, so, uh, sexual content themselves. That can be very harmful for adolescents. But other things, um, if we think about mental health conditions, is for example, if an adolescent um, is struggling, for example, with, with eating disorder, um, for example, we, we see there are studies that uh, show um, that, for example, the algorithms of uh, uh, Instagram um, or other programs, they can, um, they have the tendency to keep confronting you, for example, with anorexia-related content, and that can, um, that can make it very difficult for adolescents to, to overcome um, uh, certain uh, challenges. I mean, they also can find support in it. So, for example, if you think about uh, yeah, suicidal uh, intentions among adolescents, they can find communities which support them. But this is a very, yeah, a very kind of slippery slope. It can be negative, it can be positive. It's, it depends very much um, on the individual, on the, um, yeah, on the individual adolescent uh, about um, whether it's harmful um, or not. And that is, I think, also, that is why it's so important to um, make parents aware of these effects because they are um, they are best at uh, judging what's best for the adolescent. And we as researchers, we can make some general advice, produce some studies, but it's up to parents to kind of take the input and make decisions in relation uh, to their children. I think. And what's interesting there is I think there's a huge pressure on parents because parents don't know it wasn't there when they were growing up. They don't know how to navigate it. They don't know what to do, what to check. The rules are not there. They haven't seen it modeled themselves, which I think makes it, to me, I come back to the meta and you know, the Elon Musk and those people who are running these organizations, I believe, have a, a really big moral responsibility, which they do not take seriously enough. Yeah, that's that's something we, we are uh, currently uh, working on to, um, to identify, for example, the, the, to, to put numbers, to put empirical data to, to this idea to kind of see, okay, um, on which platforms do does this for example, this negative content, this abuse-related content, on which platforms uh, does it occur? And um, then if we, if we have empirical data and can say, okay, look, we see that there are risks on these platforms, then you can formulate um, a demand to policymakers saying, look, yeah. here's the data on that. And now we as a society, I think we should advance policymaking um, and take these people more into um, responsibility. And I think that's a that's a fair demand. Um, as soon as with the data, I think that that I'm I'm very um, I'm very confident that we can then make uh, more precise conclusions or, or demands in that direction. Absolutely, I think that's amazing. I think it's brilliant that you're doing that because it's desperately needed. And I think I mean coming back to what you're saying about that, I, I've I've read studies um, 
like like you were, I think, summarizing in your three points was that it depends what else a child could be doing in that time. So and and for me, one of my core areas of passion is social and emotional learning. And my concern is that we don't have research on this, but when a child is looking at a screen, Mm. they're not developing their social and emotional skills in the same way as they would if they were interacting with another human face-to-face, if they were even outdoor playing, because whilst that's them on their own, they're learning about their own emotional regulation. Um, That really worries me. Yeah, I, I think that that's, that's indeed um, an important point. We, we saw that um, <clears throat> we, we saw that a bit um, during uh, COVID, which is, of course, an extreme uh, example. Um, but I, I very much agree that, um, yeah, uh, the alternative or like the, 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 when you're on social media, then doing something else is, is important to consider what would that do with their lesson, because I think they're everyone would probably agree that when children play outside uh, together, that is probably better for their emotional, cognitive um, development than when they are on their own on uh, social media, basically. Um, but of course, there are also um, individual differences or different cases to that. For example, imagine um, a group of um, adolescents who would kind of meet up online and then play together certain video games that would be on their headphones, communicate together. There could also be, a, um, there's also a lot to, to learn there, a lot, um, a lot at stake. So I think that also re-emphasizes um, what, what, is, what I said earlier, that I think uh, it's up to the parents and, you know, the very individual life uh, situ- situation. Um, uh, but I very much agree that um, it's, yeah, there's always the perspective of how can, how can my child grow or like how can my children um, what is best for my children in terms of development that this is a, a very good perspective uh, to judge media use by and, and i guess in that on that sense it's helping parents which i know you've done with some of your recommendations but you know, pa- parents obviously they want the best for their kids not always i mean you'll have seen examples when you've been a social worker when they when they don't but in the majority of cases that's that's a parent's job is to want the best for their kids but we don't always know how to do that and so the more evidence that you can accumulate and then translate into something that's pragmatic and usable the better yes exactly i would disagree with one point um i think even when working uh, in child protection i think i most of the time saw parents who would always want the best for the children but I think in almost um, any cases it is a it is a question of knowledge um, and and resources so um, yeah I would I would so if as a researcher for example I very much see um, uh, or as an adolescent researcher I very much see myself or like the duty of myself to to help uh, parents like to generate that evidence um, to help parents and then um, to reach out to parents, um, yeah, uh, to go beyond publishing a scientific paper and you know reach out to parents and say, look, this is what we found. Uh, this is uh, this is average. This this is the evidence. Take it. Do what it. Uh, do with it what you want. We think it tra- could translate in this and that way to to everyday life. We don't know for sure, but 
you go, you make a decision, um, what you think is best uh, for it, for your ch uh, for your children. And I think this is this is very much how at least I see a big uh, a, a substantial aspect of my role as a as a researcher. Which again is brilliant because if you look at it from if I'm looking at it from psychology perspective, my concern is that psychology focuses on developed world in terms of studies and you you're you're blowing that out of the, the water as it were and disproving that and researching different areas and the other concern I often have with uh, psychology is we have academia and we have pragmatic and we're not translating that academia into the pragmatic and the real life so the fact that you're doing that whether it's presenting evidence for policy or whether it's actually translating evidence for parents is something to be celebrated so thank you for doing that yeah but i think it's also important um to to uh point out or to state is that i also think not all the responsibility uh, should be brought uh, to parents because it is also it's a easy position you say oh well, there's the evidence here parents you go do i think for example when it comes to um what we talked earlier about when it comes to uh, content, uh, like to uh, abuse-related con online content and stuff, I think that is something um, we also need to put responsibility on, on policymakers, on companies. So we can't just say, okay, parents, take care that your children are fine. Here is Hi. Yeah, here's this <laughs> social media platform, which has any content uh, you could ever think of. Um, and I hope I hope your child doesn't get uh, on the wrong uh, on in the wrong corners uh, of the internet. So um, this is also some, like, that you pointed it out correctly, that, you know, um, educating or reaching out to, to parents is one point, but then also to demand uh, policy changes and reach, reach out to policymakers. That's, that's the other point, because some things are beyond control, um, what, what the parent or what an individual user on a certain platform, uh, yeah, could, could, could control. So this is why we also need, yeah, action on society levels. And do you see differences in the willingness to take action across the different countries where you're studying? Um, I, I think we, we are not yet there in, in that phase of our study. It is very much um, in the phase of, of uh, accumulating um, evidence. And then at, at a later stage, we will, be, um, uh, will be possible to make recommendations. Um, and I also think that there, there's also the risk or like a similar risk that I think we don't take. Um, for example, if we research, we do research a lot on like the global south, that we then don't put the burden on rather smaller countries and like uh, smaller governments in these countries, because obviously, um, yeah, uh, uh, the US and US European Union um, and UK uh, sadly have, yeah we have a lot of leverage in uh, influencing um these policies and i i think um the arenas to fight in are the european union uh, the us and the united uh, nations and it is very much i think important that we find a consensus um as you know with different countries how to address um the power of uh, or how to how to deal with the power of uh, big multinational uh, uh, yeah, corporations like uh, Meta and uh, yeah, uh, TikTok and these, these uh, companies, because 
uh, like you pointed out earlier, they are they they act very internationally, and so I think it is beyond the control of individual countries to address uh, these challenges in relation to social media. And do you feel like we will always be slightly a step behind? I mean, sometimes that's in some ways it's inevitable because you can't research what's not already there, but it it does feel like it's getting almost further and further away the speed at which everything is developing yeah i mean i i think it is kind of the nature of the game um a big company spends years developing a product then they they uh put uh, they make the product accessible to the uh, broader public i mean a recent good example was a chat gpt um they've been working on it for years then they put it out and now slowly like people are uh, policymakers researchers I think okay what what can we do with it and in um in our field with with social media um we are i think we're a couple of years behind in properly regulating um uh, the, the, uh these uh, big platforms but i don't think that it's necessarily a, a bad thing um i mean it would be better to be quicker um but it i, I would um i would advocate that it's better to you know plan, do thorough studies, do thorough research, maybe take a bit more of a time, but then uh, come to more substantial, more grounded, more robust um, conclusions. Um, I'm, I'm not an expert on the policymaking process, but I would also assume that there's probably better to take a little bit of more time if the end product is better, because once, if you would introduce a regulation once, I think it would be very difficult to change it afterwards so probably do something maybe a little bit later but then do it right and um so i think it's not a bad thing um it, it can it can seem quite frustrating we're always behind but i don't think um i don't think it's it's too bad that was a very good very good reasoning there i i you know, hadn't even thought of that actually about how you can get that regulation incorrect and then it's very difficult to to fine tune or to adjust it once once that's been put in place. Um, good point. Well made. Um, <laughs> what so what are you actually working on right now? So you did you said when we came on that your voice was a little croaky because you did a, a two-hour lecture in an air-conditioned um lecture hall yesterday. What were you lecturing? Um I was Oh, I was just lecturing statistics. It wasn't. Um, it wasn't. Uh, See, I don't think people understand the level of statistics that there is in psychology. So when I did my MSc, part of it was we had to do advanced statistics, mm. and medicine and psychology are the two areas where you have so many different variables that you have to have quite an in-depth understanding of yeah. that. I mean, my approach is a bit more. I did. I didn't uh, lecture like advanced statistics. I like we have a course um, where we basically teach uh, robust statistics. You could say like the course is called robust behavior. That's a good name. I like that. I like that. Yeah, because um, so I did a I studied a, I did a master in statistics and, and did a lot of statistics doing my uh, PhD. And there is super sophisticated stuff, super advanced, and every year more advanced techniques come up. But I think what is the most important thing is that we understand the basics and we do them right. I think, I mean, I think that's so important. It's like you can apply the wrong model to the same data and you get a diff totally different outcome. 
Yes, exactly. One example from my current work, which is related to that, is the, the, the study in collaboration with UNICEF um, I, I just talked about. So we are interested in getting estimates, proper estimates of um, how often adolescents in different countries encounter um, yeah, abuse-related um, content online. And so we're basically only, um, if you want to simplify it a bit, we're basically only occupied with estimating means. And we've been working on that since half a year because if you really want to properly estimate a mean, there are very many things um, to keep in mind, like sampling theory, um, a little about survey statistics, like how can you combine data from different countries? How can you um, represent a population accurately? And so um, on, on this project, we basically we run very simple statistics, um, more or less. And I'm, I'm really happy with that. Well, I think this is a bigger challenge um, for me as a statistician, uh, probably the biggest challenge I've had uh, in my uh, young career so far, because you, if you really want to get it, like you can, never can get it 100% right, but if you really want to get it right to, or like if you want to be confident about your results to a very high degree, and doing simple cross-tabulations can be very challenging. And so this is what I also try to um, try to transport or try to convey to uh, to students um, during lectures. And um, yeah, I think it would be good if we all uh, do uh, what would come a bit back, move to the roots, and and focus on that. But that's also not my individual opinion. There's a big movement in, in research, and um, what that also inspired me. Interesting. I didn't know that. I didn't know there was a big movement. Um, so I'm conscious of your time. You've got amazingly important things to do. Um, so grateful for your hour explaining the research you've done and you're doing. I'm also hugely grateful for the work you're doing because it is so needed and it does need to be done properly, not just sort of, I think this is this, or I, I throw out some numbers here. It's hugely important so thank you on behalf of all parents of adolescent kids um globally and yeah please keep doing it because someone needs to be doing it and doing it well yeah thank you uh, so much for inviting me i think it's also very um you do a very uh, con uh, important contribution and making these things visible uh, and discussing these so i'm very happy uh, to have talked about it Thanks so much, Sebastian. Thanks to my guests. Thanks to you for listening. If you want to find out more about me and my work, go to fionamurden.com or my social media handle is also fionamurden. If you enjoyed this, please do subscribe, review and tell your friends. It would be a massive help. But for now, goodbye and I hope you have a great week.